Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains references to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name's Michael Adams and today we're going back to Friday the 6th of September 1940. That was the day, 80 years ago, that the military transport Denira steamed into Sydney Harbour from England. On board were more than 2,000 Germans, Austrians and Italians, the majority of them Jewish refugees from Hitler's regime. These men were anti-Nazis, under the care of the British, yet on their 57-day voyage they'd been subjected to conditions similar to those of the old convict ships, or one of Hitler's new concentration camps. Daenerys sailed from Liverpool on the 10th of July 1940. That was just over a month after the defeat at Dunkirk and the very same day that the Nazis brought the war to England with the Battle of Britain. The British government, believing that invasion was imminent and that a fifth column might assist the Nazis, ordered the internment of all male enemy aliens aged 16 to 60. Germans, Austrians, Italians, many of whom were Jews who'd escaped the Nazis, were rounded up in their tens of thousands. Britain's internment camps were soon full, like the prison hulks had been 150 years earlier when the first fleet sailed to Australia. Winston Churchill's government hit on a similar solution, asking Canada and Australia to take 7,500 enemy aliens, that was, prisoners of war, fascist sympathisers and civilian internees. These men weren't told where they were going. They were simply crammed onto a ship called the SS Arandora Star. It was a cruise vessel that had been requisitioned as a troop carrier. And on the 27th to the 30th of June, 1,300 men were boarded at Liverpool. Of these, only 86 were German POWs. The rest were civilians. And while some were Nazi sympathisers, the overwhelming majority were simply German and Italian Jews who'd thought they were safest from Hitler in England. Also aboard were some 200 British soldiers to guard the internees and 174 officers and crew. On the 2nd of July 1940, a single torpedo from a German U-boat hit Arundora Star and the vessel sank, with a loss of 805 lives, which was about half of those who'd been aboard. And the internees who survived? They'd be among the 2,542 men crammed onto Denira, a converted liner bound for Australia, not that any of them knew that. Of the enemy aliens aboard, 451 were German and Italian prisoners of war, and there were a few dozen fascists. The rest, more than 2,000 men, were anti-Nazis, and most of these were Jews, many of whom had had highly successful academic and artistic careers. Daenerys' internees were guarded by 309 British soldiers and the crew numbered 290. So, in all, there were 3,141 people aboard a ship whose official capacity was just over half that. Before the internees even got into their cramped quarters, they were searched and robbed blind by the British soldiers meant to be guarding them. Money, jewellery, 
anything of value was stolen. Their baggage was stacked on decks and rifled. Whatever wasn't stolen was simply thrown overboard, including religious items and religious books. Given these people were refugees already, this meant they'd been stripped of everything they owned. Denier steamed from Liverpool on the night of the 10th of July. The ship narrowly survived a U-boat attack on the 12th of July when two torpedoes passed beneath the vessel and exploded nearby. The shuddering and the noise through the ship caused mass panic among the internees. This was to be expected in any case, but the terror must have been felt especially keenly by those who'd lived through the horror of the Arandora star sinking less than a fortnight earlier. What this torpedo attack also made obvious was that if Denira had been hit and sunk, most of the civilians would have died. That was because while the POWs and Nazi sympathisers were kept in a barbed wire enclosure on one of the upper decks, the 2,000 internees were crammed into the darkness below decks. With just one staircase as an escape route, if the Denira went down, they'd go down with it. Luckily, there wasn't another U-boat attack. Instead, the internees had to contend with abysmal living conditions and shocking abuse. Every surface was covered with men. Some had hammocks, but many slept and sat as best they could on the floor, on tables, under tables, on stairs, and in hallways. There were 10 toilets for more than 2,000 men, and these were soon overflowing, flooding the living quarters with effluent. Shaving equipment had been confiscated, and soap was next to non-existent, so most everybody was hairy, dirty, and stank. Illness, from seasickness to diarrhea, was rampant, adding to their misery. Portholes were most often kept sealed, so the atmosphere was even more fetid. When the windows were occasionally opened, men had to queue to take turns gulping in fresh air. Food was monotonous, non-kosher, and often squirming with maggots. As hideous as all of this was, the British soldiers, who were often drunk, made things far worse by brutalising and torturing the internees. As but one example, when internees were allowed onto the deck to exercise one time, they were battered with rifle butts and made to run over broken glass. The British soldiers committing these atrocities were a mixture of miscreants. Some had suffered at Dunkirk and were intent on taking it out on anyone with a European accent. Other soldiers had until recently been prisoners themselves, but had been allowed out of jail on the condition that they join the army. And many were simply regular soldiers who were encouraged to brutality by their superiors, Lieutenant Colonel William Scott and First Lieutenant John O'Neill, with the former turning a blind eye to theft and mistreatment, while the latter actively indulged his own sadism and encouraged his men to bash, torture and intimidate. It's also important to remember that at this time in Britain, anti-Semitism was widespread. And many of the English soldiers aboard Denira probably held views of the Jews that didn't differ too significantly from your average German soldier. Despite this atrocious treatment, the internees kept their spirits up with lectures, singing, and even playing chess with pieces fashioned from stale bread. But one internee who could no longer tolerate the torture killed himself by jumping overboard. Meanwhile, another died of natural causes. Having stopped in Cape Town on the 8th of August, which allowed British soldiers to stock up on booze and launch into a fresh round of alcohol-fueled beatings, Denira reached Fremantle on the 27th of that month. The internees remained on the ship, where they were documented by Australian officials who were surprised and concerned by how ragged and underfed these men appeared to be. 
De Niro got to Melbourne on the 3rd of September. Here, the POWs and actual Nazis disembarked under guard and were sent to Tatura, prisoner of war camp. While at Port Melbourne, one internee escaped through a porthole and was caught as he got ashore. For his defiance, he was beaten black, blue and bloody in a cell on the ship. All of this was happening without the Australian public having any idea that the internee ship had even arrived because strict war censorship was being enforced. Steaming north for Sydney, a third internee died aboard De Niro. Some reports said he was killed while fighting with another German, yet other reports said he died after attacking a guard, being punched and falling down. The Australian public did know this because the censor allowed news of the internee's arrival in Sydney to be published, albeit under strict conditions. One of these, as referenced in Cyril Pearl's 1983 book, The De Niro Scandal, stated, quote, Articles of an alarming character, such as might cause reprisals against Australian internees in Germany, must not be published. And all photos and articles had to be submitted to the censor for approval. Yet Australian military and customs personnel, along with church officials and a Melbourne woman welfare activist, had seen the condition the men were in, and despite First Lieutenant O'Neill's efforts at suppression, had heard some of the internees' stories. Even if reporters were aware of this information, nothing was allowed to see newsprint, lest it compromise national security and the war effort. Just after 10am on this day 80 years ago, De Niro steamed into Sydney Harbour. About an hour later, the internees began their disembarkation, bound for a recently built internment camp at an undisclosed location. While the Sydney Morning Herald couldn't rock any boats with its reporting, its coverage lionised the British soldiers and demonised the internees. Its September 7 headline read, quote, War prisoners arrive from England. Shipload of Germans and Italians. Dunkirk veterans in escort. Dramatic incidents on voyage. This was incorrect because those still on Denera were not war prisoners, and the majority of the English soldiers were not Dunkirk veterans. As for the dramatic incidents on the voyage, Lieutenant Colonel Scott, who was described as a, quote, impressive kilted figure, told how Denera had had that close call with U-boat torpedoes. As for his human cargo, he told the Herald's man, quote, the internees were fed better than any British troops are fed. As for the demeanour of the internees, he said, I would rather not say, we have had our moments. But Lieutenant Colonel Scott was further quoted by the Daily Telegraph as saying, Many of them were absolute wrecks when they came on board. On the voyage to Australia, they filled out and arrived in Sydney in the best of spirits. It was widely reported that the prisoner who'd leapt overboard had gone to his death with the defiant cry that he was doing it for the fatherland. Yet his fellow internees would later say this man had simply succumbed to depression. The Nazis, the British officers told the press, had also twice tried to set fire to the ship. Why they would have done this when they had it so good was anyone's guess. As evidence of how good they had it, Lieutenant Colonel Scott had claimed that at one meal the internees had devoured 6,000 sausages and, most recently, between Fremantle and Melbourne, they'd consumed 4,000 pounds of fresh fish. Their butter ration alone had been 235 pounds a day. And they'd been allowed three hours a day deck time for sunbathing and exercise. So, all in all, a bit of a pleasure cruise. And a pleasure cruise for enemy aliens because of the Sydney newspapers, only The Sun reported, quote, the bulk of the internees were civilian, 
with the Sydney Morning Herald and Daily Telegraph happy to give the impression that all the men were POWs or fascist sympathisers. The internees were marched along Darling Harbour's wharf, guarded by cordons of police with revolvers, and they were herded onto trains awaiting them. The Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, Most of the internees seemed very young, and they smiled as the trains pulled out from the wharf, as if they were delighted at arriving in a safe country. I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest those smiles were more likely because they'd survived two months of a hell trip and were finally putting De Niro behind them. The Sydney Morning Herald continued, quote, A large proportion had grown beards during the voyage, as if this had been a choice. The paper continued, Not very vigorous gross, as a rule. The result on boys' faces was often almost comical. Many gave the thumbs-up sign to onlookers. A number of the older men, however, frowned and scowled through the train windows, looking like cartoons of dangerous conspirators. In contrast to these bearded conspiratorial Jews, here's how the British soldiers, who were nicknamed Tommies, were described by the Herald. Quote, they are men of magnificent type, well-built, smart, keen and alert. Part of this excitement was because it was the first time in 55 years that British troops had landed in Australia, with the exception of a Grenadier Guards band and contingent that had come out for the opening of Parliament in 1927. These Tommies, fresh from Dunkirk and fresh from guarding thousands of dangerous Nazis on a two-month voyage, were welcomed in the city, and newspapers in the coming days ran photos of them larking, marching to church and wooing local women. Among these photos was the ghoulish, smirking face of First Lieutenant John O'Neill, who'd won a Victoria Cross in the Great War, yet had spent the past two months beating and torturing men who hated the Nazis and Adolf Hitler more than he did. Nowhere in these articles was the ship named Denira mentioned because, like the fact that the internees were bound for a camp at Hay, such specifics weren't allowed by the censor. Of course, Australia's political and military officials knew what had gone on. Australia's Governor-General, Lord Gowrie, wrote to King George VI in November 1940, saying of the internees, quote, some real injustices have been committed. Two months later, in January 1941, the name De Niro was all over the newspapers after an independent member of the House of Commons raised questions before British Parliament about the conditions on the ship and the conduct of thieving British soldiers. After that, De Niro became an allied scandal as internees' stories about how they'd been robbed, bashed and tortured made the papers here and in England. The British government ordered an inquiry and in mid-May 1941, Lieutenant Colonel Scott and two sergeants were court-martialed. Vicious First Lieutenant John O'Neill wasn't charged with anything. In recognition of how atrociously the internees had been treated, the British government would, down the track, pay £35,000 compensation to the men, though, given there were more than 2,000 of them, this was a pittance that amounted to less than £20 per person. As for the De Niro boys, as they'd become known, most were released from the Hay Camp by the end of 1941. Given how appallingly they'd been treated by the British, and by Australia, which had interned them, even though conditions were far better than on De Niro, it spoke to their loyalty and fervent anti-Nazism that many joined the Australian Army's 8th Employment Company, which supported the war effort here on the home front, while others returned to England to sign up and fight the Nazis. 
Some 900 Denira boys were to remain in Australia after the war, making hugely valuable contributions across fields as diverse as athletics and art, engineering and economics, philosophy, photography and physics. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. 